Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 17. Today we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. Last week we looked at the genealogy of Christ, his heritage, if you will, humanly speaking, showing that he was from the he was a son of Abraham and he was a son of David, right on down till Jacob and Joseph. And as Matthew says it in such a picturesque way, that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah, not calling Joseph Jesus' father, because he wasn't. He was at best a stepfather or a foster father who cared for this one who came into the world during his infancy and childhood until he was out on his mission for which he came into the world, which Matthew begins to deal with a bit in talking about his birth and talking about the, the circumstances of his birth. One thing we have to remember, every time we come to the New Testament, especially every time we come to passages that are related to prophetic things, things that, as Matthew will say, so that it might be fulfilled, so that what the prophet said might be fulfilled. And he uses that a bunch of times through his uh, gospel, Matthew does, because he's interested in the fact of prophetic utterances and prophetic fulfillment in the life of Jesus. But one thing we need to understand, while Matthew may very well use that 18 or 19 times in his gospel and points to certain specific prophetic words that relate to Jesus, we must understand that the entirety, the whole of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, are prophetically pointing to Christ. This whole book is about Jesus. You may not see that. You may not see the name. You may not see the, in, a, in a clear understanding as we have in the, in the New Testament. But you need to understand that everything from the beginning, everything from the garden, and especially from the fall when God pronounces that Satan will bruise the heel of the seed of, of Adam, but that the, the seed will bruise his head, that is a prophetic utterance of what took place on the cross thousands of years prior to its taking place. This whole book is about Jesus Christ. This whole book is about the Messiah. This whole book is about redemptive history and what God is going to do to preserve and protect a people for himself through the Messiah, through Jesus, his only begotten Son. I mean, if we fail to see that, if we fail to grasp that, then we fail to understand the beauty of God's revelation and the fullness of God's revelation that comes to us from thousands of years past. And of course, as Todd read this morning in the passage of Scripture for the Scripture reading, we understand that it didn't just begin in this passage we talk about this morning when Mary and Joseph find out about what's going to take place and what's about to happen. It doesn't just begin there. It begins in the cosmic past in eternity past where Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He has never not been. He has never had a time when he did not exist. And we will think more about that in days to come. But in verse 18, hear the word of God and hear what Matthew records for us related to the birth of Jesus Christ. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had, had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son called his name Jesus. Now I dare say that everyone in this room today could have probably recited, at least if not verbatim, a pretty good paraphrase of this passage of scripture. We've heard it as a part of the Christmas story ever since we were children. I mean, we see, you know, manger scenes and, and we think about the, those things and we, we think about that birth and we know, we know that there is the concept of the virgin birth. But I know with a lot of people today, especially in our culture, and probably not that few people even within the church, sometimes we read a passage like this from, from Matthew's Gospel where it talks about having a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and all of these things, the angels coming. A lot of people look at that and say, yeah, right. The, the, the virgin birth is a very difficult thing for our natural minds to con, uh, conceive and to, to cling to, to understand. Because it just doesn't happen that way. It's just not the normality. It's just not what we see in everyday life. We know that a husband and a wife come together. They, they know one another in the biblical sense. And they conceive and they have children. That is the normal, natural way for children to be born. And yet Matthew comes along and says, You need to understand that this one who is born of this, Ma this Mary, this young girl Mary, he is not like everybody else. He is not uh, conceived in the same way everyone else is conceived. And he is not going to be like everyone else that has ever been. It's a part of his life story. It's a part of his uniqueness. It's a part of his glory that he was born in a way that was quite different. Now we hear betrothal and, and many times we hear that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph in, in verse 18 and we say, well, that was kind of like an engagement period. It was far more than an engagement period. In fact, it was a, it was a legally binding thing. If you got out of the betrothal, before the marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage, you could only get out of betrothal by divorce. You, you had to have an article, an act of divorcement in order to break the betrothal period. There's a lot of reasons for that, not least, I don't imagine, is probably a monetary factor there, that probably at the, betroth at the beginning of the betrothal time, there has always, already been a payment paid by the groom or the groom's family to the bride's family, her bride price. 
has already been paid, at least part of it, if not all of it. And, and so the betrothal period is a very strong, very binding time in this relationship. Betrothal, just like marriage in that day, carried with it the, uh, the law's command, the law's demand of stoning by death if it's broken by adultery. If there's adultery in the betrothal period of, of one of the parties, they are to be stoned to death because that is a serious violation of God's purpose. It's considered as adulterous in Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. They, they make that very clear. Now, it's not hard to get a divorce during the betrothal period. As a matter of fact, all it takes is two witnesses, the groom's declaration to be that he desires that, and for two witnesses to say, okay, we heard the groom say he wants a divorcement, and he can walk away from it. Thus, Joseph's desire here to do it quietly and silently and, and, and keep it sort of a secret so that no one will know. He loves Mary. Now, it's probably an arranged marriage. Both of them have consented to it, but their families arranged it. Mary is probably somewhere, and this will sound strange to our ears, but somewhere between ages 12 and 16, more likely between 12 and 14. And, and they are, they have, she has been betrothed to Joseph. The marriage has been planned. Joseph is probably somewhere between 18 and 20, a little bit older, uh, old enough to, to carry out a trade and to take care of a family. And, and this all has been arranged, and this has all been taken care of, and there has been a contract, if you will, signed, between the families and between Joseph and Mary. If you read history, especially rabbinic history, you'll find that a century or two later, rabbinic history begins to talk about Mary and talk about how she had been betrothed to Joseph and how they had come together and yet she had been unfaithful. Some, some uh, uh, rabbinic writings said that she had been unfaithful with a Roman soldier there in Bethlehem or in, in Galilee and, and she, had, she had been unfaithful to her betrothal through a Roman soldier I mean they had a, a whole scheme planned out to explain that because it was very important to the Jewish rabbinical tradition that there be no virgin birth as a matter of fact they even raised the issue and some do this today back to the Isaiah passage and I'm a little ahead of myself here but I think it's important to this point that they raised the issue that in Isaiah the word that Isaiah uses in the Hebrew can really be translated as young woman and does not carry with it necessarily the meaning of virginity, the nece uh, necessarily the meaning of never having had relationships with a man. That, that, that there was this sense it could be a young woman who was not totally chaste or totally pure in every respect of the word. And, and there is a technical sense in which that is true. But I tell you what, when you come to Matthew, I don't think there's any doubt in what he's saying. I don't think there's any doubt in what he's meaning as he quotes Isaiah. And he says, listen, when the Isaiah the prophet spoke, and Isaiah took a son, named a son, Emmanuel, just like that prophetic thing says, and the Old Testament scholars, the rabbinic scholars, want to say, well, Isaiah was just talking about his son. But if you know anything about the prophets in the Old Testament, they generally name their sons with a foretaste of that which was yet to come. They generally name their son saying, this is, what is, this is what this means and it will be utterly fulfilled in the future. And Isaiah, while he was talking about God was going to protect the divinic line there in his day through a birth of a son, perhaps his own son, who would be used by God, that there was coming a day when the promise of God would be fulfilled that his people would not perish, that his people 
would last forever because of Emmanuel, because of this one that would be born of a virgin and would come at just the right time in just the right place in time in history to fulfill the prophecy of Almighty God. So Matthew says, now, the birth of Jesus was like this. And Mary found out. Now, it's interesting that Matthew says very little about Mary's encounter. Uh, Mary's understanding, just in, in a sentence here. says, when Mary, his mother, when his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, they came, before they had come together, that is, they had not had any kind of marital relationships, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's it. Now, Luke, on the other hand, decided to give us a little more insight into Mary. If you'll turn over to Luke chapter 1, you find there that, that Jesus' birth is foretold to Mary by the angel that spoke to her and said, Don't be afraid. You found favor with God in verse 30. Well, actually, if you back up to verse 26, it says, Now in the, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin in, and, and the translators here use the word engaged here it should be betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary and coming in he said to her greetings favored one the Lord is with you but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and will reign over all the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be? How can this be? Because I am a virgin. Not I'm a young woman. Young women could have children. But I'm a virgin. I've never had relationships with a man. Then the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, uh, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing for nothing will be impossible with God and Mary said behold the bond slave of the Lord talking about herself may it be done to me according to your word and the angel departed now some people look at that and say well they must have left out a verse there because surely the angel said now Mary if this is alright with you you know, uh, we, we, the Holy Spirit wants to conceive in you a child and wants to, uh, this child to be the Messiah and, and he really wants to work this out. And, I, and so he must have said there, if this is all right, because she says, Behold, the bond servant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Surely that was in response to him saying, Is that okay with you? No. But that is the proper response to the work of God in our life, isn't it? Isn't that the proper response to God's work in any of us? When God calls us, it's not to 
debate. It's not to argue. It's not to say, well, that's not what I want. And Lord, I wish you would do it another way. Or, or Lord, I wish you could, could, could let me have a word in this. And let me have a say in this. And let me be the determiner of how I'm going to do. And how I'm going to live. And how I'm going to serve you. No. The, the right answer is when God comes and says, you are to serve me. And you are to be my child. And you are to be a part of my church. And you are to minister in my name. The right response is, Lord, let it be done to me as you will. I'm your bond slave. I'm your doulos. I'm the one that you have called out of darkness and into light. And that's exactly what Mary is saying here. She's saying, listen, praise be the Lord. I'm glad he, I'm glad he chose to do this work in my life. And I would never dream of reacting any other way than to say, Lord, do it in me. Do it in my life. There's an obedience there. Joseph has the same thing. Look back in Matthew. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing account. And you get both sides of it, one from Matthew, one from Luke. They don't contradict each other. They complement one another, as we talked about with the genealogies last week. It says in verse 24, And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until... She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The, the angel said, name him Jesus. Uh, Joseph did. The, the angel said, listen, take Mary as your wife. This is not a sin. She's not been involved with some other man. This is of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God. The angel told Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. That seems impossible in the eyes of men. And now all of a sudden, boom, they both get the same word, and they both respond in the same way. Lord, we obey your command. Oh. A beautiful example for us. What a beautiful example of what it means to be walking with the Lord in such a way that when the Lord speaks, we don't argue, we don't debate, we don't try to change His mind. We just say, Lord, do as You will and use me for Your glory. That's what Mary and that's what Joseph both did in their lives. Now, there's this interesting thing about the name. The prophet said, call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. The angel said, you are to name your son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew throughout his whole gospel is going to show a real familiarity with, with Isaiah. He's going to show an understanding of Isaiah and Isaiah's prophetic words. He's going to show the truth in, in how he sees that Isaiah is speaking forward to what he's experienced and seeing the life and the ministry of Jesus. He's going to show that close familiarity. And here is no different when he says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. This is what Isaiah was looking forward to, that it might fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Notice that word order. It was not just a prophet speaking. And, and Matthew did not understand Isaiah saying this as much as he understand, understood this is what the Lord is saying. This is what the Lord is proclaiming. Thus says the Lord. And, and that which seems impossible, that which seems out of step with reality as we determine reality, is absolutely possible in the eyes of God. You go on and read Mary's praise in Luke's gospel when he uh, we won't do that this morning, but I encourage you to take times. I don't know if we'll get to that in this Advent season or not, but in verses 46 through 55, where you have the, the Magnificat of Mary, where she just praises God 
for choosing her and praises God for using her for his own glory and to bring about the effectiveness of the, of the Messiah coming into the world. See, in Matthew's day, they wanted a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah very badly. They wanted a Messiah who would come in and set up the, king, uh, the throne of David, the kingdom of David again, and throw out the Romans and throw out anybody else that might stand against the Jewish people. They really wanted a Messiah. And they wanted him strong. And they wanted him powerful. And they wanted him to come riding in on a horse and, and slay the enemy and set up the kingdom. They certainly didn't anticipate a Messiah who would go further than that. They thought the Messiah would save them in the sense of forgiving them of their corporate sins. You see, they understood that it was because they had followed after idols. They understood it was because they had married outside of the faith and had brought in all sorts of false religions into Israel. They understood that it was because of those sins that the kingdom was divided and the kingdom was conquered. And even in Isaiah's day, the Assyrians were coming in and destroying the, the, Israeli, uh, the Israelite people. They understood that it was natural, national sin that brought that about. And they knew that that sin needed to be dealt with and the Messiah would come and they would all reform their own lives and they would all turn back to temple worship and the worship of God and they would all say as they had many times before, oh yes, the Lord, He is God until everything got good again and then they'd go their own way. But they all anticipated that this is what Messiah would do. The Messiah would set up an earthly and forgive national sins. Forgive corporate sins. In sort of a, a, a swoop sort of way that just says, okay, I'm here, I'm ruling in righteousness, everything's okay. But Matthew says in verse 21, quoting the angel, talking to Joseph, a Joseph who was no doubt confused, a Joseph who was no doubt troubled. I mean, he said he, 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 was, he, he really wanted to just put her away quietly. He didn't want to disgrace her. But you know, the truth of the matter is, the fact that he just married her understands that he believed what the angel said. I mean, there's no way that he would have married someone that he thought in that day had committed adultery before they'd ever come together and conceived a son. There's, there's also the sense in which, you know, Joseph understood that, that he could quietly do this and she could go live with her parents and could get by. Probably never would find a husband, a woman unmarried with a child in that day. A bit different today, but in that day never would have found another husband. But as long as her parents lived, she would have been cared for. Joseph wanted to do that, but the angel said, no, don't be troubled by this. The angel said to Mary, don't keep on worrying about this. Don't keep on struggling with this. Because this is the work of Almighty God. Don't be afraid. Don't keep on being afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who's been conceived in her is by or of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21. And I think verse 21, dear friends, is the essence of this passage. It's the focal point of this passage. It's the importance of this passage. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus 
for he will save his people from their sins. Born of a virgin. And then as has already been talked about earlier in prayer, he will live a sinless and perfect life. I remember in seminary having a professor who said, you know, the, the greater miracle between the, the, the virgin birth and, and the, the sinless life of Christ is that any man on this earth could live sinlessly. Any man. But Jesus did just that. He was God-man, no doubt. But he was 100% man as well as 100% God. God in the flesh, God dwelling among us, but it was, it was the beauty of his life, the importance of his sinless life, that he never sinned, ever sinned, ever broke the law of God in any way that allowed him to be our Savior. You remember the Old Testament sacrifices? When they would go into the temple to offer on the Day of Atonement a, a sacrifice for the sins of the people, they offered a lamb, and that lamb had to be spotless, without blemish, it had to be perfect in every sense of the word. You know, Isaiah, Malachi, rather, in his day, chided the people and chastised the people because what they were doing is they were, <coughs> excuse me, looking at their flocks and they were saying, you know, here's a lamb over here, or here's a goat over here. I don't need those. They're crippled. They broke a leg. They're, they're not really, they're kind of scrawny. And so they would bring those and say, here's my gift to God. And, and, and I, I, Malachi said, do you mean to tell me that you would bring to God that which you would not even take to your governor? Are you telling me you bring to God what you wouldn't even try to pay your taxes with because it is blemished and it is something you really don't need? No, no. When they came in obedience, they came with a spotless lamb. And that spotless lamb had no effectiveness in itself to forgive sins. It was an animal. It was symbolic. It was prophetic. It was pointing forward. And every time they did that, every time they offered a lamb, every time they offered a sacrifice, it was pointing to the fact that there was one day yet coming the perfect lamb of God, the perfect without any blemish, without any spot, without any sin. I mean one that is absolute perfection who will come and be sacrificed for our sins. Not just corporate sins. Not just national sins but who will come and redeem his people from their own sins. Their own disobedience to the perfect will of God. Their own sin nature that dwells within them because we are all sons of Adam. C.S. Lewis called it in Chronicles of Narnia. Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And because of that we are sinners by virtue of our nature. And by virtue of our nature we sin. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners by birth, by nature. Jesus has come to redeem. Jesus has come to save by his very name, Jesus, or, or, or his name, Jesus. In, in the Aramaic, it's Yeshua. In the Greek, it's Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Joshua. But all of those mean quite clearly God is salvation even in his name it was proclaimed what he would do 
when he went to that cross. Even in his name, it was proclaimed that he came with a purpose. And so, quite honestly here, my friends, I look at this and I say, my favorite phrase for this Advent season, the cross was always behind the cradle. The cross was always in the mind of God and in the mind of Jesus from the time of his birth. And so we cannot come to this beautiful Advent wreath and this beautiful little nativity scene and we can't come thinking about the beauty of the little baby Jesus born, you know, baby Jesus meek and mild because that baby Jesus meek and mild is the Lord of heaven, the Lord God of all creation and the Lord who would go to the cross to redeem his people from their sins. To bring forgiveness. To bring relationship. To bring us out of darkness into light and out of death into life. This is no fairy story. This is no fairy tale. This is the story of Almighty God breaking through human history to save a people for Himself. Now there are a lot of people who ask the question, well, you know, why is, why is a virgin birth not talked about more? Why is it only that Luke and Matthew even make reference to it in and quite honestly, you almost have to say, only make reference to it in a sentence. I remember on our Wednesday night questions uh, that we've been doing for about two years now, asked the pastor, one of the, thing, one of the questions came up, did Paul ever mention the virgin birth? And the answer to that is no, he didn't. You say, well, why didn't he? If it's such an important doctrine, why didn't he mention it? Well, it was assumed that they knew that. It was a well-determined fact from the revelation of God through the, through the prophets and, and through what they saw. Now, some would try to make up stories. As I said, the rabbinical tradition and others, just as they did about the resurrection, they immediately said, well, let's, let's make up a story here. We've got to have a narrative here that will explain why this cannot be. But as far as I'm concerned, that just shows the validity of it. You don't try to explain away things that are not true. You just let them go. Just forget about them. But all through history, people have tried to say, well, this is not possible. There's no way that Mary could have been with a child unless she had had relations with either Joseph or somebody else. So that has to be, how are we going to explain this? The only way to explain it, my friend, is what the angel said to Mary. With man it may be impossible, but with God all things are possible. The pre-existent incarnate Christ pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Godhead came into the womb of Mary. Unusual? Yeah. Biologically incorrect? Yeah. You know, physically unbelievable? Yeah. Perhaps spiritually and I don't mean just in a spiritual spirituality sense I mean spiritually that it's the work of almighty God to bring about the redemption of his people is it possible yes possible and real possible and true so in this Advent season that's what we celebrate 
But I want you to understand that, that you know, this is no light doctrine. This is no easy thing to just kind of say, oh, well, I, yeah, I believe it. Think about it. Meditate on it. You know, I, I had a, one of my dear friends, Dr. Tommy Lee, who's with the Lord now, my fa- one of my favorite New Testament professors in, in, uh, in seminary. Tommy would always say to the class, he would say, when you read, when you read about the virgin birth and you read John chapter 1, don't just read them. Read them worshipfully. Read them on your knees before God, thanking Him for the miracle that is the miracle that cannot be explained by human terms, but is and will always be the miracle of God's redemption forevermore. This is the revelation. This is the truth. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we celebrate this day, as we celebrate this truth, We ask you, O Lord, to open our eyes, perhaps open the eyes of people who've never trusted you to see their need for the Savior, to see their need of his work on the cross, the perfect for the imperfect, the righteous for the unrighteous, taking our sins upon himself and then giving us his righteousness. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will just reconfirm in our hearts this great truth, this great reality of the birth of Christ. Father, we thank you now for this time together. Do your work in our lives in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is